Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about venture capital, where investors and founders alike can learn how VCs make decisions and reach conviction. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Reed Christian joins us today from the Bay Area. He is general partner at Charles River Ventures, an early stage venture fund investing in enterprise, consumer, and bioengineering. CRV has backed over 500 startups in its 50-year history, including Airtable, DoorDash, Drift, Dropbox, HubSpot, Postman, Twitter, and Zendesk. Prior to CRV, Reed worked with Battery Ventures and Symmetric Capital. Reed, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nick. Great to be on here, and thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. We, I mean, you and I have talked a bit about your background and your path, but uh, for the audience, can you share kind of your journey and your your path to to venture? Absolutely. Well, it uh, I guess it starts on a, a beautiful dirt road in rural Maine, where I grew up. My uh, my folks uh, had me had me go into a, a Waldorf education school, um, which is an alternative education uh, uh, schooling program across. Uh, or all around the world, really, but got it started in, in Europe. Um, then went on to uh, Bates College, a small liberal arts school there in in the great state of Maine. And after that, a, a couple investment banking internships and uh, a desire to uh, to then leave that great state. Um, stumbled down to Boston and started my my professional career at a growth equity firm called Symmetric Capital. And Symmetric is. Uh, is known, or, or actually, it's not. No, it's definitely unknown, but it's memorable for uh, for two reasons. One, it was a, a group of uh, Summit Partners investors that spun out, raised a two hundred million dollar fund, hired a bunch of young kids like myself to uh, to to scrounge up any bootstrapped businesses across North America, and pitching a minority investment for liquidity and growth. And uh, the second reason that it's memorable is because it was a, a one and done fund. They were so success, successful with their six or seven investments that uh, they decided not to raise another fund. So <laughs> I uh, took took that learning experience and um, that that kind of launched me into the, the venture world. Amazing. And you've been at CRV now for how long? I joined CRV a little under four years ago um, after Symmetric. Uh, I had a brief stint at a, a startup in, in Boston called Salsify. Um, in the uh, in the product information management space, helping brand manufacturers get their product information from uh, from uh, the manufacturers, uh, getting that data to uh, to e-commerce retailers. Then I went over to Battery Ventures, multi-stage enterprise-focused VC firm. Worked there for a couple of years, mostly focused on kind of dev data and security, investing across Series A through Series C. Um, B2B SaaS businesses and, and then moved with my wife from Boston to the Bay Area and, and joined CRV. 
uh, focused on early stage investing. I, I noticed that Salsify closed a $155 million Series E recently. I hope you, you had some yeah, options early there, Reed. <laughs> you know, it's funny. They called me a, an MBA intern while I was there ah. uh, because uh, even though I wasn't getting my MBA and I wasn't an intern, but it was, uh, it was set up as a, a one-year engagement. I had a long lead time before my start date at Battery, and I asked around for what the best team was in the, in the best early-stage company to, to go hang out and work with, and uh, everyone pointed me to the team at Salsify. So I went there and unfortunately didn't have didn't get any options, um, but uh, but more importantly got an incredible experience and an awesome network. So I'm I'm still cheering for those guys big time. Amazing, amazing. So it, you know I suspect the the vast majority of the audience knows uh, about C- CRV, but can you uh, talk about the thesis and kind of where your focus is? Absolutely. So. Uh, CRV, formerly known as, uh, well, still somewhat known, depending on which part of the country, as Charles River Ventures, got its start exactly 50 years ago on MIT's campus, um, right there in Boston on uh, on the Charles River. Um, the initial idea was to to fund research coming out of the university, um, and it was um, pretty early in the venture world. Um, very small checks, small fund, um, high risk investments. Um, and you know, that core thesis has, has basically played out for 50 years as we've raised now 18 funds. Um, we just raised, um, the latest one, which will start investing early next year. Um, that's a $600 million vehicle, um, focused on seed series A and opportunistically series B investments. And, uh, you know, the, the idea is, is take risk back exceptional founders and, um, and really kind of look to, to be in business with, uh, with entrepreneurs that are going out and, and changing the world. Um, the trajectory of the, the firm is pretty interesting. You know, as we started in Boston and the Boston ecosystem was uh, quite strong for many years and, and remains strong today. Um, but over the last kind of 10, 15 years, the firm has somewhat migrated West. As part of that, um, we've kind of uh, refocused the brand around uh, CRV uh, as, as our competition would always uh, uh, you know, tell, tell entrepreneurs that we were an East Coast firm. And now um, nine of the 10 of us partners are, are in the Bay Area, uh, but still make investments across uh, North America and, and through Europe. Very good. And you closed a $600 million fund in July. Uh, any change to approach or thesis with that fund? No change at all. Um, the last two funds have been $600 million, And we're really trying to, um, you know, uh, and, and we can talk about this now or later, but you know, really trying to focus the um, the messaging around early stage. Um, as I came from a multi-stage firm in Battery, um, and as many of our competitors have raised either multiple funds or multiple stage funds to support entrepreneurs from early stage growth, pre-IPO, even into public markets, uh, we think our, our core, you know, small investment team, um, entrepreneurial group. And collegiate atmosphere of of a flat and equal partnership, um, supporting entrepreneurs at the earliest days is where we both have the uh, the the expertise and the interest and excitement um, to uh, to focus on. So, no no change to the core strategy um, as it relates to uh, the the stage of businesses. On the types of companies we invest in, you know the core core platform of CRV is, has been around B two B investments. Um, that's where 
probably the slight majority of our dollars go. We also have practice areas and some great successes within consumer investing, as well as this uh, newer practice area that we call Deep Insight Bioengineering, which is the intersection of bio, healthcare, and uh, AI uh, ML. And do you have sort of specific sectors or, or areas that you go deep on? Yeah, I spend all of my time on the, on the B2B world. Um, you know, within that, uh, I would say I, I try and um, try and focus my efforts, um, although kind of early stage venture, I think, is, is still very much opportunistic. Never know who you're going to meet, uh, what, where phenomenal founders end up building a, a company around. But the, the the three kind of core pillars that I'm I'm ten I tend to be kind of or lanes I tend to be uh, swimming in one is in kind of developer tooling um, bleeds a little bit over into security or data related businesses often selling into traditional enterprises um, and end users um, that often are technical so engineers security professionals uh, IT professionals data engineers and the like. Um, that's one area where I've, I've made several investments and, and have a decent network, um, I believe, to, to go and in vet and source those projects. Um, another area is just application software. Um, and I credit the, the Battery Ventures training to that. Um, you know, uh, B2B SaaS that is uh, that's sold into the line of business, um, whether it's HR, tech, MarTech, sales enablement. Um, I look at a lot of projects there. And then the last area, which is um, which actually brings me back to my symmetric days, um, but I haven't haven't looked at up until kind of the last 18, 24 months. But I'm getting increasingly excited about is is within vertical software, um, and in particular all the trends around um, vertical SaaS and the intersection of of uh, payments and, and financial services that drastically grow the, the market size for for some of those industries. Do you think uh, vertical SaaS or cloud is overheated at the moment, a little frothy or appropriately sort of valued <laughs> across the venture landscape? Yeah. You know, I think as a, as, as a investor who's been in the industry for nine years in the greatest bull run ever, um, you know, uh, I am constantly warned and told by those smarter and wiser than me that uh, that there will be a pullback, and so I, I don't necessarily doubt that. But also, I, I take such an optimistic view in that there's no better time to start a company. There's no better time to build a, a, a SaaS business. It's um, you know the talent funding is available. Um, that uh, that I think in some ways a lot of these valuations are are justified, or at least they're justified in an open market where there's a ton of venture dollars that will fund these projects sitting on the sidelines. Um, so I don't see anything slowing down, um, slowing down anytime soon. Yeah. It's, it's been a while since we've talked about developer tools or development tools on the, on the program here. Um, do you have like a, a framework or, you know, uh, um, a way that you vet and, and look at and look for, you know, strengths in the, in the companies, uh, you're vetting on the developer tool side. Yeah. The, the, so, so maybe backing up. So, um, when I was, when I was at battery, I, I showed up at one of the first AWS reinvents, um, AWS reinvent is the, uh, Amazon web services user conference, which is somewhat become the, well, up until this year, 
uh, had become kind of the, the focal point for a lot of enterprise software and the enterprise industry from vendors to service providers to VCs to startups. And I walked around the floor and there was just incredible companies getting started like Datadog and PagerDuty and HashiCorp and all these cool companies that were just helping businesses move from on-prem to the public cloud, which is what, what AWS was. And so that kind of got me hooked on, wow, there's the, these, these purchasing decisions aren't being made by a CIO in the, the senior level at, uh, at enterprise. They're being made by the end users. That kind of caught me onto that trend. Um, and, and as I talked to more and more entrepreneurs and they kind of preach their gospel of what, uh, what, why their, their world and, and the world they're building in, into was so important and how, you know, the power has shifted from, from the manager to the, to the, to the engineer and really kind of the power of the developer, um, and the budget they were seeing more and more of over time. Um, I kind of got hooked on that. Um, and so as, as I now think about kind of the next iteration, um, of, of investing in developer tools, an area that I'm particularly excited about is the, the architecture that's kind of shifted where there's applications are being built, um, uh, decoupling the front end and the back end. So what that means is the back end and all the infrastructure can be provided by larger tech companies like Amazon and Google and Microsoft. And then um, there, there's the front end, which is really important for consumer and uh, user experience. Um, design is really important. And, uh, you know, there's kind of a decoupling. And so I've been investing in platforms that are on top of that trend um, and that uh, are really helping front-end developers that are, are, are developing kind of the, the, the UI, UX of, of the software. Um, and then really to, to directly answer your question, the, the way I vet these projects is I go and ping 100 of the smartest engineers I know and, and ask them what they think because I'm not technical <laughs> by background. And then I, I do a lot of filtering of, of what comes back to me. That's good. That's good to have that network. Uh, is it typically, I mean, based on your description here, is it typically product-led uh, businesses and growth? Absolutely. And, you know, I take it even a step further. I think it's really the power to the developer. Um, and what I mean by that is, um, you know, engineers are being staffed across an organization today. You'll have marketing teams that will need engineering resources. You'll have sales enablement that really, in order to you know build custom features in their um, in their uh, even like Salesforce in, in, um, uh, instance, you'll need uh, you need some technical resources. I mean, even in the BI world, you know that has has crept self service BI across the across the org. There's really a developer, engineer, data engineer behind that. And so, what I'm fascinated by is I think that you know developers are, are really going to be one of the biggest purchasers of, of um, software within enterprises as they kind of creep in uh, uh, across across the organization and be embedded within different functions do you have do you think at all about either for example the IT function or the security function or even maybe the data science you know function also evolving with tool sets and and uh, you know, automation and, and whatnot that we've seen in the developer tool space? Yeah, I, I think the, I've been hoping for this. 
Um, in particular with security, I love the idea of making investments within security um, that uh, go beyond the traditional security operations center, the SOC, which is what most big companies kind of filter all security purchasing and uh, in talent through. Um, and uh, But I haven't seen it as much as I'd like. Uh, I would love to go make a bunch of investments in, in security products that are used throughout the organization and, and throughout different profiles. Um, but I haven't seen as much. I've made a couple of investments that I'm excited about, but but um, hasn't been um, hasn't been quite as fruitful as as I would have hoped. Um, but that being said, uh, in particular on kind of the data science side, um, I personally haven't. I've kind of um, seeded, uh, meaning letting go of uh, of kind of my my data network and, and experience as, as a couple of my partners are, are much more versed there. And several of our colleagues in, in, uh, at other venture firms have doubled down on that thesis. Um, so we're definitely excited about it as a, as a firm. Um, but, but I think that world is, is um, that world's been very difficult because there's so few users compared to number of software developers and engineers to sell into or even compared to security where budgets have already been and, and will continue to be for a while. So I think the data science world is still quite early, but definitely an exciting category. How do you deal with uh, products or services that have an existing line item in the budget versus, you know, those that are new that can create, you know, new markets, new market expansion, but there isn't a line item on the budget today in the enterprise and that can create, you know, some challenges around sales cycle and velocity. Absolutely. I think it really comes down to the entrepreneur. You know, there's some great entrepreneurs that are truly category creators. Um, they, they need to be, uh, you know, they, they really need to kind of evangelize and, and build the community and, and drag an industry and lead an industry um, forward versus, um, you know, replacement has, uh, CRM is the best example. There's just been so much money made. Uh, payroll would be another great example of these just massive industries that continue to go through um, through refresh cycles. Um, that uh, actually payroll, I guess, has less of a refresh, but certainly a very fruitful category. Um, but uh, you know, I, I invest in both. Um, you know, probably at least um, our firm. We've we've done a great job of investing in both. Um, with SaaS, the last, I'd call it 10 years, have been focused on kind of refresh uh, cycles largely. And now we're seeing a lot more category creation, um, newer markets being built, and, uh, as, as it, and not necessarily going after just a specific budget line item, because that, those, mar- those markets have been attacked by a lot of SaaS vendors at this point. You, you mentioned it, it goes to the talent. You know whether it's category creation or 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 refresh. You know what what are some of the hallmarks of the best teams that that you've worked with? So I think uh, a great example in the CRV portfolio would be um, would be Airtable. Um, the CEO Howie, you know, has been basically preaching his view of of the future of software development and software and and providing software to those that aren't technical by background. Um, but still want to uh, explore and create um, applications. And so he came out with Airtable, which had its simplest form as a cloud database, and then the ability for creators, non-technical people, to go and build 
um, their own workflows and their own products on top of that. Um, you know, but that requires uh, someone that really has a North Star vision, is executing over a 20-year timeline, and has the ability to, you know, be really, you know, uh, get people uh, along and, and bought into that. Um, investors included, as as well as users and employees. Um, so I think that's a, just a fantastic uh, example. On the flip side, you know, we have businesses um, in the portfolio like Iterable, um, which is a fantastic team out of Twitter. They're building the next generation growth marketing platform, um, uh, going right after Exact Target and, and Salesforce. Um, and it's uh, in many ways kind of a replacement. Um, and the execution required and, and how a product needs to be truly 10x better to replace an existing solution um, equally as challenging as, as category creation, um, but also um, but also can, can be uh, you know, a, a great place to, to build a business. Can I have to uh, tell my friend Scott Dorsey, here about that one i'm sure he's very aware i don't i don't think he's he's too worried um probably uh, not yeah yeah well and he's moved on to some other things as well no i'm I'm glad you you brought up this point about centralization with airtable because um i have seen this you know dramatic shift over time from just centralized consumption focus to you know decentralization empowering creators you know tractability and, uh, you know, that's been something that, you know, we've focused on in our thesis, trying to empower people to become creators. And, uh, you know, even even the talent here at Newstack, we've had a lot of interns and I, I tell everyone, don't just go out and read a bunch of blogs or consume a bunch of things like go create a new group or a new club at school or, you know, go create a, uh, a new product, software product or, or what have you like. Um, and all the tools that are now available, both on the B2B side or even in the consumer space, um, you know, I've just, with Airtable, it's a great example. Like it's, it's empowering a lot of folks uh, to build. Absolutely. You know, I think I've, I've failed my, uh, I mentioned my parents earlier, but I failed my folks in, in one big way so far. In my, well, probably many ways, but, you know, the only advice my father gave me was to go work for a product company, go work for a company that actually builds something that physically, you know, helps an industry, helps, helps others. So I've failed by, uh, by pushing money around, uh, my, my whole career so far. Um, but it's, it's awesome to, uh, to, to be able to back great entrepreneurs that are building something that are really helping people with their day-to-day jobs and, uh, help helping those creators, um, as they kind of feel, fulfill their own, uh, visions. So Reed, just to shift gears a little bit, uh, from a geographic standpoint, are, are you investing exclusively in the U.S.? Are you also doing investments in in Europe now? Um, I know that traditionally, in previous decades, people have been sort of bearish on the European market, but now now there's more than I believe there's more than thirty uh, billion dollar plus venture back companies in Europe. Uh, is that a focus area for CRV? It absolutely is. Um, and and you know I, I would maybe remove the the term focus um, in that. Uh, We've been investing in Europe for, for many years. We're the first investors in Zendesk when it was three guys um, in Europe. And, uh, you know, oftentimes you're right that in particular, the Sil- Silicon Valley mindset is, you know, the best, the best companies are here, the best talents here, the best investors are here. And there's like this, you know, kind of obnoxious, self-fulfilling prophecy um, uh, of that. 
Um, I have found in particular that, um, you know, there's just incredible talent and um, B2B uh, businesses that have been founded in Europe in particular over the last three, five, seven years. So personally, I've spent a lot of time even going back to Battery, made a couple of invest investments in companies like OpsGenie, which Atlassian acquired, Calibra in the data governance space, and now since joining CRV, um, have made two investments, one in Sofia, Bulgaria, and one in Barcelona, Spain, and uh, very close to making a, a third. Um, you know, what's difficult in, in the venture world is, is prioritization. You know, we have a small team. There's only so many companies we can invest in and only so many entrepreneurs we can even meet with. Um, and there's an endless supply of, of great, great startups to, to chase down and, and diligence and vet and work with. Um, so we don't have anyone on the ground in Europe. Um, I personally uh, just really enjoy and, and have um, kind of really liked the types of, of founders and, and businesses that I've seen. Um, and up until you know the pandemic uh, was making several trips there, uh, several trips there a year. Um, I think what's interesting now is that all, all the other Silicon Valley firms that have been much more Valley centric in their investments are now much more open to uh, to making investments in Europe. Uh, as we're we're sitting on Zoom all day, any uh, anyways, um, uh, I'm seeing a lot more activity, and I think it's only going to increase in the coming quarters and years. Yeah, it's, it's not just Europe too. Here in the the broad Midwest, uh, we had that. I mean, it's good it's good for founders, but we had the luxury of low competition for a number of years, and um, we had never lost a deal at Newstack in like thirty deals. And I think we're going to lose one coming up here because all of a sudden, you know, I'm competing against five other term sheets, some of which are from the coast. <laughs> And so all, all, all of a sudden, you know, the coastal investors are comfortable investing in seed stage companies, you know, in the heartland. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting to see the, the shift. And the one, the one interesting piece on, on top of that is that, you know, with Zoom, I'm, I actually find that I'm spending more time uh, both with my existing entrepreneurs uh, that are already portfolio companies. And as I, as I diligence and invent new new investments, um, because it's just easy to hop on a Zoom for 20, 30 minutes, ask you a couple questions. You know, um, the relationship building, obviously, is very, very different and, and nothing beats in person. But I found that I've been able to spend more hours uh, with the entrepreneurs uh, I'm working with and, and, and ones I'm potentially going to work with, um, which has been kind of, a, at least for me, a, a really you know, positive thing uh, throughout all this. That's a great point. Hey, have, Reed, have you found that after investing, you know, across the U.S. and then also Europe, um, different European countries, have you found that the needs of either the founding teams or the businesses themselves are different depending on you know the geography, the talent pool, the 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 developed skill sets of the regions and you know the the places that you're investing in? I would say yes. There definitely definitely are a few points there. In particular, as I think about startups coming from Europe um, or coastal um, or, or companies that aren't founded on kind of the coastal U.S., um, you know, the, the there is something to um, having access to larger enterprise budgets and um, talent of, in particular, on the sales and marketing side um, that have sold into these larger companies. So, what I mean by that is, you know, a SaaS startup gets its start in, in back in my state of Maine. Um, there's probably not a, a plethora of um, 
you know, available VPs of sales and VPs of marketing that have scaled SaaS companies from one to 20 million or 20 million to 100 million right there in the backyard. Um, and so I think that, you know, that is something in particular in Europe that continually, as people want to get into the U.S. and think about um, attacking enterprise budgets, um, they do look for, for VCs to help them navigate um, kind of bringing on the right sales and marketing talent. Um, and then the second piece is I am just, you know, I'm kind of blown away by uh, the, the engineering talent that I'm seeing in particular throughout um, not just Western Europe, but Eastern Europe in particular um, with modern uh, developer languages like JavaScript, being able to, you know, self-taught um, and all these, all these developer platforms that let, allow you to get code online, uh, online much faster and, um, and inexpensively that I'm seeing just great businesses that have strong front-end engineering talent uh, throughout Eastern Europe in, in particular. Um, you know, the, the last thing that I'd say is there is um, the, you know, North America in, in the U.S. has kind of, uh, it, it's a great place to sell software. There's kind of relatively, uh, well, there's large, it's a massive market, but also people are pretty sophisticated in a good way on purchasing software. So if you're selling across Europe and you're selling to a company in Germany and then in France and then London, you know, UK, like it's actually very different sales cycles and different buyers and buyer personas on the other side, which can make it pretty difficult to, to build a repeatable inside sales team or even enterprise sales team. In the U.S., now this doesn't happen for every industry, there's a little bit more standardization in the buying process, Got which it. makes it, I think, better for, for go-to-market teams. Got it. Both, both the process as well as the titles, like homogeneity across like who are the buyers at, at different companies and how do we get in there and, and uh, qualify and, and get in, into the buying cycle? Yeah. Yeah. Been having a lot of conversations with that with founders lately, both in in product led models and enterprise models and some combination of the two. And uh, you know, getting the users using, you know, a either a free version or, you know, some version of the product and then getting the decision makers, you know, thinking about big ROI and and value from uh enterprise S. Yeah, you, it's funny you mentioned that. Um uh, one thing that I've been seeing is a lot of these um, SaaS companies have gone from kind of enterprise sales outbound to not just inbound, but really kind of product led, you know, get get a product into uh, an end individual contributor's hands. And then the the ideal, you know, path is that it kind of grows throughout the team and then you tap into a, a manager's budget or, or further up the further up the, um, the organization. But um, what I found really interesting is that actually the land is relatively easy, but then it's the, it's not just the expand, but how do you actually make that jump up to a, a big budget item? And so I'm seeing that at all of our kind of product led companies, the, the leading indicators are very strong, but then how do you go back and what's the value that you're giving to the business to renegotiate a hundred thousand dollar deal or a $300,000 deal? Um, it's kind of a new, new buying, um, uh, and, and selling motion. Um, but I think a lot of startups are, are still really just figuring out. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta and there's already 16,000 VC backed companies on the platform. 
They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to PacWest.com to learn more. Interesting. So, so Reed, I'm going to put you on the spot, give you a hypothetical situation. It's called three data points. Uh, All right. I'm going to give you some info and you got to make an investment decision. But you can ask me for three specific data points in order to make that decision. Um, so let's say your approach to invest in an enterprise SaaS startup. Founder's great, great background, a fit for the industry. Uh, MRR, let's say, is 200K, growing 20% month over month. LTV to CAC, let's say, is five to one. Quick ratio greater than four. Uh, here's the catch. You can only ask three questions for three specific data points to make your decision. What three questions do you ask? What industry are they selling into? Okay. Well, what's their burn rate? Okay. Who are their competitors? Okay. On the industry front, what are you looking for? What if they say like, Procurement, for for instance, that'd be great. Yeah, I'm just trying to make sure that there's a a big enough market on the other side. Yeah, yeah. And then burn rate, just right size spend for team size and scale. And well, I was going to ask how much they had raised, uh, but but actually, I cared less about that. Uh, I cared if they're if they're burning ten million dollars a month. Uh, I'm probably not going to invest. <laughs> they're at two hundred k ARR. <laughs> Good. And then competitors, is that to hear how they think about it or just see how, how, um, competitive the space is or what's your, that's a, it's, it's almost a double question or it's almost a repeat question from the first one. But, um, usually if I hear, and, and maybe I'm giving myself too much credit, but usually if I hear, uh, two to three, uh, software companies names, I can hone in pretty quickly on whether I like the, the market opportunity or not. And, uh, and if I think that there's a, that there's, there's a good uh, business to be built there. I like that. I like that. You know, we, we've done, I think five, five or six investments now in models that we consider to be broken. So there's established players that have raised some venture dollars, but have not gotten momentum and are, do not have the right solution for the market and customers are churning and not super happy. And then we've kind of found the business that we feel like has the solution that the customers have looked for. And we've gotten lucky with those. (laughs) And so often, you know, there's a lot of big spaces people go after, but it doesn't mean that they have the appropriate solution for the market. Yeah. And I also, I I like to, uh, I tend to have a very strong point of view on markets and it has nothing to do with me 
you know, knowing a market better than an entrepreneur, certainly not. It's actually out of time prioritization. Um, because if I loved all markets, then I would, uh, I'd just be kind of chasing my tail all day. So um, if it's a market, you say it's, you know, enterprise procurement, I'd say awesome. Um, if you told me it was, you know, going after the um, digital media ad tech budgets, like I'm just not going to look at it. Someone could build an incredible company there, best founder, but I'm, I'm going to prioritize my time away from that. G- give me a couple more markets that are on kind of the top interest list for you. Right now, I think um, you know the the, the finance org. Uh, a ton of a ton of uh, VCs are really excited about this um, about this market opportunity, and um, and actually one of my partners has done a, a, a bunch of work there. So I would likely uh, send send all deals uh, her way. Um, but I think that things just have to change in the finance org. There's no you know that's the the backbone of a business um, and and the tooling that the VPs of finance, CFOs and like have, it's just, it's just not good enough. Um, and then, you know, anything that helps with, uh, with developer productivity, um, and, uh, in cloud infrastructure, I think it's just, you know, a, a markets procurement would be another one. I, I really like that in particular kind of vertical procurement platforms. Um, you know, it's, uh, a ton of spend businesses, um, kind of need to manage, and so uh, I think that there's that's still a, an older category that just is is ripe for ripe for innovation. I may have one for you. It's still in stealth, and it's pretty early, but it's a good one. Awesome, bring it on, Reed. What do you know you need to get better at? Oh man, there's there's so much. Um, you know, I think in uh, in the venture world, at least in, in career wise, there there's a there's a few kind of pillars in 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 the venture world. I think you got to see more deals. You got to uh, diligence those those projects and decide whether you whether you invest. Um, you got to win the deals you want to invest, and then you got to work with the the portfolio companies. Um, I think uh, two and four on that list, you know, diligence and um, judgment is so hard. Uh, it's it's just you know we're wrong so many times. Um, that one for me, I think I have the least control over. Um, the, the last bucket of, you know, how to be a great board member. Um, absolutely. That only comes with time. Um, and it's something I work on. I, I seek mentorship. I learn from other board members. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I'm always very open with the, the entrepreneurs I work with, um, what they're going to get, what, what they're not going to get. Um, and then, um, and then winning, you know, this is uh, this is hand to hand combat in my mind. Um, and, uh, you got to win the, win the projects that you, um, you want to win. Um, and, uh, that's part of, part of what's so exciting about this as a, as a former college athlete, I love the, the competition, um, and, uh, in, in figuring out how, how best to, uh, to, to win some of the projects I want to be involved with. Yeah. It's certainly not getting easier to win deals over time. Um, but for sure. In particular, when, when, uh, some of the, the, the later stage firms or, uh, series A firms start coming into the Midwest, right? That's right. That's right. Um, <laughs> any words of wisdom or advice for the early stage founders out there, whether it's, you know, those focused on SaaS, big data enterprise or developer tools? Yeah, you know, I, I, I always caveat what I'm going to say, and I kind of touched on it earlier with, um, you know, there's, there's definitely a, a lot of privilege involved in being, um, being a founder, you know, being able to kind of, uh, 
you know, uh, whether it's your own personal resources or, or giving up a career, a, a great career path or, um, you know, family or other considerations. Um, uh, so it's very, very unique, unique, um, uh, to, and, and, uh, specific to each individual if, if they're even able to, to go and start and, and be an entrepreneur. But I just really be, truly believe there's no better time to start a company. Um, if you have that itch, um, if, uh, if, if you've got an idea or, or you find other people, um, it, there's, there's no, no better time to go and start a company or join an early stage company. Uh, it's exhilarating, um, and, uh, and, and a lot of fun, uh, along the way. And finally, Reed, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you? I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Um, that's, uh, I accept most, uh, most, um, connections. I'm on it all day. I think it's, uh, it's, it's kind of the platform for business. I find that a third of uh, entrepreneurs are on there as much as I am. Uh, another third um, tend, to, uh, tend to check it at least every other day because most entrepreneurs I, I work with are kind of full-time recruiters in many ways. And then a third will never, never check their LinkedIn. That's totally fine. But um, yeah, chase me down on LinkedIn and, and I'm, I'm usually very quick to respond. Awesome. Well, Reed, this has been a real pleasure. You know, best of, of luck with the cross-country trip here. Uh, we've been running this show for six years, and I feel like we're six years too late featuring CRV, but I'm very thankful that we had you here today to tell, tell us a bit about the thesis and, and what you look for in early stage startups. No, thank you, Nick, so much for the time and uh, for hosting me on here. All right, that'll wrap up today's interview. If you enjoyed the episode or a previous one, let the guests know about it. Share your thoughts on social or shoot them an email. Let them know what particularly resonated with you. I can't tell you how much I appreciate that some of the smartest folks in venture are willing to take the time and share their insights with us. If you feel the same, a compliment goes a long way. Okay, that's a wrap for today. Until next time, remember to over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.